1: Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Tuesday. Glad you're with us. Glad we have an awesome show planned for you today. Glad that TJ Moe is here in studio with us today. round of applause for uh, TJ Moe, still visiting us from St. Louis. TJ will be back with us tomorrow. Uh, We have an awesome show, a really awesome show. I can't exaggerate how awesome I think and expect this show to be. Brett Favre, you guys want to know what about Brett Favre? Well, Brett Favre is going to be here on this show uh, very shortly. We hope to get 20, 30 minutes of Brett Favre's time uh, this afternoon. I'm looking forward to talking to the NFL legend. Uh, we probably, likely, we're not going to spend much time talking about uh, the criminal cases, or not criminal, wh- whatever the cases are, out of civil, criminal whatever cases he's got going on. There's a gag order on Brett, but he has agreed to give us some time and we're gonna talk some football, we're gonna talk a little politics, what's going on with Brett Favre. In just a few minutes, and I I wanna preface the Brett Favre conversation and Steve Kim's going to join us at the end of the show as we reflect on our conversation uh, with Brett Favre so Brett Favre and Steve Kim will be here with us today and TJ Moe but I want to set up this conversation and explain to you all because I'm sure I'll take a little heat uh, for this conversation People are going to say, "Oh, why, yeah, Brett Favre? On Brett Favre is beyond the pale. Brett Favre, what he stole money from welfare in Mississippi." first and foremost, I'm a journalist. That's the first thing you have to understand. I'm a journalist. I interview, talk to any and everybody. The other thing about being a journalist is I recognize where journalism is today. And it's in the toilet. And so the very people that the media tell us to hate, the very people that the media revile and smear are the very people I want to talk to the most because I want to hear the other side of the story. I've been a person reviled, smeared by the media. It's the, the last 10 years of my career, the corporate media has been trying to cancel me, trying to smear my reputation. That's just in the last 10 years. It started long before that. I've never been a popular, uh, well-loved figure among my sports media peers. I was always an outsider because I was always critical of and suspicious of the mainstream corporate media. And so I, I look at, and I'm gonna go Big picture here that may be confused. I may go a little Royce White here. It it may be a little too big a picture, but take the Durham report, the the report that just came out uh, yesterday about the Russia investigation and Russia colluded with Donald Trump to steal the 2016 uh, election. Take that. And how that report comes out and uh, totally obliterates the FBI, shows the FBI's bias, unfair tactics, and how the FBI tri- interfered with the 2020 election and the first three years, basically, of Trump's presidency trying to destroy this guy with this whole Russian hoax thing. And, and the FBI, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic machine, Corporate America all uh, conspired to try to destroy Donald Trump with this whole Russian smear. The Durham Report lays all of it out how unfair it was, how unfounded it was, how corrupt it all was. And the media. So the fact that, hey, you should hate Donald Trump with all your heart. You should do everything in your power to make sure his presidency is a failure. And then you should turn around in 2020 and do everything you can to make sure he doesn't get reelected. This is why I don't trust the media. They lie. They work on the behalf of the intelligence agencies and everybody that stands against the regime. And the regime is the progressive left. It's the uniparty that involves both Democrats and Republicans. It's the establishment that wants to join this one world government, this new world order, this globalist agenda. And so Brett Favre, who came out in 2020 and said that, hey, uh, he supports Donald Trump. Am I surprised he's in the crosshairs of the media? Am I surprised that Anna Wolf, and I think it's the news organization called Mississippi Today, just like the Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of this Russian hoax. The Washington Post, I believe in 2018, won the Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of something that we now know was a fraud and a gimmick. I'm not a thousand percent certain that a year from now, two years from now, Anna Wolf in Mississippi today that just won a Pulitzer Prize for local reporting about the welfare scam and Brett Favre's involvement in the welfare scam in Mississippi. We may find out that was a hoax, particularly Brett Favre's role in it. And I say that because I'm wise enough and have been in the media long enough to know if this welfare, this $77 million of embezzlement or misappropriation of funds uh, in Mississippi, if it didn't involve the name Brett Favre, would it win a Pulitzer Prize? Or would it just be an example of local, statewide government corruption that happens across the board welfare fraud and all this padding that they do to all this legislation all this pork they put in legislation so they can pass the money around however they want it without brett farb's name is this a big deal or is it just stereotypical government state government corruption and misappropriation of funds you toss in one of the greatest football players of all time, into that story, now you can win Pulitzer Prizes. That's what I suspect is happening here, that Brett Favre's name was attached to this story to make it a bigger deal. And we've all, Brett Favre, again, who's been outspoken in support of Donald Trump, who has, in recent weeks, been outspoken in support of Tucker Carlson, he's in the crosshairs exact same crosshairs that I'm in and other people are in that say what they think, don't go along with whatever the left and the regime and the uniparty uh, say. We don't say the right things. We don't hit the right notes. We're all vulnerable to the kind of attack that is transpiring with Brett Farr. I would not be surprised if this is What happening to Brett Favre is no different than what happened to Donald Trump. Do I know? I don't know. But I'm I'm an American that believes in innocent until proven guilty. There is no proof that Brett Favre, at this point, is guilty of what they've charged him of. And so I'm not going to treat Brett Favre. And I'll say that even if he's found guilty, I'm not going to treat Brett Favre like he's a pariah. If, if the left can act like George Floyd is a saint worthy of statues, if the left can act like Jordan Neely is a saint worthy of, oh my God, I can't believe someone tried to uh, put, because I can't, even, just contain him, restrain Jordan Neely in an aggressive fashion, despite 40-some-odd arrests, uh, injuring of elderly people through assault. If they can act like that guy is a hero and his past had nothing to do with what happened to him, if they can do all that, I can certainly stand by Brett Favre until he goes through a court system and is proven innocent or guilty one way or the other. I have no problem standing by Brett Favre I'm looking forward to talking with Brett Favre again. There's a gag order. He can't talk about the case. But I just want to talk some football and life uh, with Brett Favre, and we look forward to doing that shortly. Uh, Just like I look forward to telling you guys every chance I get about our friends at Preborn and about a mindset that we're adopting here at Fearless. And in this fearless movement about life beginning inside the womb, we know how important that is. We know how important that mindset is to your approach to life once it's come outside the womb. And so, as fearless soldiers, we've adopted a mindset and we've adopted the action of supporting preborn. I was just looking at my American Express bill uh, last night, saw my little monthly contribution. Uh, to preborn is going off just like I wanted to every month. I hope you guys are doing the same. Hope you're also making some extra donations from time to time. We have to support life inside the womb. You guys know what preborn does. It provides ultrasounds to women who are thinking about an abortion. Preborn introduces that expected mother to the baby in the womb through an ultrasound, heartbeat, visual image, the whole nine. When a woman sees that, she's 70, 80% more likely to choose life. Pre-born has saved more than 200,000 babies' lives. We're going to save 50,000 just pre-born through this movement here at Fearless. We're going to save 50,000 babies' lives. All we need you to do as a good, fearless soldier is make that $28 donation. That pays for one ultrasound. $140 pays for five ultrasounds. $1,000 pays for a lot of ultrasounds. Whatever you can afford, $5, it's a great contribution. It's a great start. A monthly donation would be awesome. You can do that. All you got to do is go to, uh, in your phone, pound 250, say the keyword baby, or give the Jason Whitlock way, preborn.com slash Jason. Love when you guys do this. Love when I get the emails and notes from you all telling me that you've given to preborn. We certainly appreciate it. It's what any good fearless soldier should do, needs to do. Love it. Thank you so much. You can email me, tell me about your donation to Preborn. That guarantees you a response from me at fearlessblaze show at gmail.com. Uh, don't go anywhere. Brett far is just around
2: the corner.
3: It's my obligation hate discrimination raising up your hands for freedom.
2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All
1: right, welcome back. Uh, Without further ado and without much of an explanation, we are joined by NFL legend, pro football hall of famer, one of the greatest football players of all time, Brett Favre, a Packers legend. Uh, Brett, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Oh, wow. Well, thanks you're for all having clean me, shaven. I was hoping we'd get the, the bearded Brett Favre, but uh, you're man, all cleaned up, you, man. You look like you just came home from church.
0: No, I just came from surgery. I had back surgery actually yesterday. Uh, it's been a rough three, three and a half months. I had total hip replacement uh, January 26th. And my back really, uh, actually before the hip replacement, my back was giving me problems. But I was hopeful that the hip replacement not only fixed the hip, but sort of fixed the back. At least that's what I hoped. And that wasn't the case. So I had had back surgery yesterday morning.
1: Too many (laughs) sacks. Oh, my (laughs) God. Uh, you're still tough as nails during this interview. Uh, I mean, how you feeling?
0: My back is really sore, uh, as as you would expect. Uh, but I'm honored to be on your show. I appreciate you you being a uh, a supporter of mine, and uh, it goes without saying. I mean, I, I'm honored to do your show.
1: Well, we're honored to have you. <laughs> yeah we're 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 honored to have you, and you know i I just did a short introduction before we brought you on where you know I'm one of these guys, Brett, that whoever the media is beating up on is who I tend to favor and think, oh my god, uh something's not right here because I've been beat up on in the media, virtually everybody that uh, is doing anything right or stands for anything gets beat up in the media, so yeah. Uh, you know, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. And when I see people getting beat up in the media, it starts making me think they're even more innocent. And we'll leave it there. I know we can't talk about the court cases, and I'm really not that interested in, in, in talking about any of that. I, I've got some interest in some of the things you've made news for, your defensive Tucker Carlson, what's going on with Aaron Rodgers. But the thing I'm most passionate about is that I, I've been dying to have a conversation with you for almost two decades. It has been two decades now. Since your most famous game, the Monday Night Football 2003 uh, game after your dad passed away, I've got a completely different take than everybody else. So if, if you could humor me, I'd like to start there by talking about that game. Sure. You good with that? Yeah, yeah. So. Brett, I think you and everybody else chose the wrong narrative on this game. And so bear with me. I said this in 2003. I said it on December 23rd. I think I wrote a column in the Kansas City Star or for ESPN that the entire narrative on this game is wrong. Brett Favre played a really good game, really solid game. It's what I expected from Brett Favre his teammates went above and beyond and played an incredible game out of respect and affinity for Brett Favre. I thought everybody celebrated your individual performance. I thought that game was more of a statement about, man, these guys in the Packers locker room love Brett Favre. Javon Walker, all these guys put on their best performance, circus catch after circus catch, out of respect and affinity for Brett Favre. Ice wrote it at the time, and I believe it for two decades. That game said more about you as a teammate than as an individual performer.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, and I've said that. I've talked about that game a lot of times, um, as you would expect, and I've always not given my teammates, uh, cr- you know, I, 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 how do I word this? I, I've never talked about it in regards of my teammates, like just giving them their due. It, it's the truth. My career, 20 years, is not anything that I did personally. It's what we did collectively as a team. Each and every year, you know, I, I exclude the Atlanta year of my first year. I didn't play. I, I, I just watched but I but after that all my success is You know, especially early in my career when I didn't know right from left and uh, how to read defenses and it was really just relying on talent. Um, I always Gave the credit to the to the teammates that I played with, deservingly so. You know, there's no other sport that relies on each other as much as football. Think about it. A pitcher can throw a no hitter and they never touch the, the the bat on the ball, and so your left fielder, your right fielder, your center fielder, your infield never gets to play. I mean, you know that. So in football, that's not the case. I can be on top of my game, but if the guys are not blocking, you would never know it. If guys are not running the right routes or dropping the ball, you wouldn't know it. And and vice versa, uh, a receiver can be on the top of his game, but if I can't put it where he can catch it or make the right decision, how would you ever know? And I, I was always, I think what my dad taught me, and I've, I've talked about this a great deal, my dad, I, we grew up I I got two brothers and a sister. My dad was a driver's ed teacher and a high school football coach. My mom taught special education. We always rode to school together. We always rode home together. And when it was during fall football, my dad drove his truck and then he and I would go to practice and then we'd drive home together. Never once did he say, whether in passing or in the truck, or at the dinner table. He never said, look, now you got to read, I want you to read the strong safety as a flat defender in the curl of the flat. It was never that. It was about being a team. We never, well, first of all, I never passed in high school. So the wishbone was our (laughs) our go-to. He taught me how to be a leader and that you were never any more important than all the other guys on the team. What? he did with him in practice, he did with me in practice. And quite frankly, he rode my ass a lot harder than the other guys, even when I did the things right. And I was like, you know, give, give me a break. But later on in my career, it made sense that you're no more important than the next guy on the team. And you're not. Yeah, you may make more money, you may get more accolades, but in, in the end, everyone is equally important and that's true in football. And so that's, that game is really a microcosm of my whole career. It was about the, you're you're right. Javon Walker made tremendous catches. Wesley Wallace made an unbelievable catch over his shoulder. David Martin, Donald driver, Robert Ferguson, you know, the list goes on and on. And the, If I ever wondered if if my teammates had my back, I didn't wonder anymore after that game. And that was, if there was anything cool about the whole scenario, it was that. Like, I really wanted to be, you know, a great teammate my whole career. I wanted guys, I I wanted people to say when no one was listening or separate from the public, if you said, hey, Donald, hey, driver, would you... Would you jump in the foxhole with Brett or vice versa? I would hope and pray that he would say yes. And the same goes for the next guy and the next guy. yeah, I wouldn't want someone to say, look, between you and I, I wouldn't want to get in the foxhole with Brett. I wouldn't want him in there with me. But I can't say that publicly. I would hope that that was never the case in my career, if that makes sense.
1: it, it makes perfect sense, and and it, it made perfect sense what the NFL did, and John Madden, and the television networks uh, building up Brett Favre and writing those ratings and writing you know your individual talents to great television ratings and building up a star. But I I, I just I always felt about that game like. They missed the real story. I left that game in in 2003. That's 20 years ago. I'm I'm, uh, 35 years old, 36 years old, uh, right in the prime of my sports writing career. And I was like, everybody's missing the story. This is a story about how much these players, these 52 other guys, love Brett Favre. And and your individual talent speaks for itself, and there's plenty of games that, that demonstrated that. But I had never seen an entire team, a whole group of offensive players, just play out their rear ends yeah. late in December uh, for a guy that clearly they had a great affinity for. Uh, and, and you say that's a reflection of the way uh, your dad brought me up, which pivots me to uh, another kind of lighthearted question. But I, I sincerely want to know, did your dad know that you had a great passing arm? Did he know that you could be a
0: gunslinger? <laughs> I, I go back to one. I was being recruited by, by a few schools. I only got offered by one. That was Southern Miss. But the guy who recruited me from Southern Miss was Mark McHale. was the offensive line coach and so he and my dad actually struck up a relationship and I think that I say this jokingly that he offered me a scholarship because he enjoyed drinking beer with my dad but he told me (laughs) sometime after I became a Southern Miss Golden Eagle um, he said you know your dad I went down one of the recruiting visits and I said to him look Irvin if you want your son to get a scholarship, an offer from someone, whether it be us or anyone else, you have got to throw the ball. You've got to show what he can do. And his response was, "We'll get here in pregame because he'll—that's when he'll get all his throws in." And that was the truth. If my—I know it's crazy, but if my father were here today and he were on this podcast, he would say, "Jason." It worked out okay, didn't it? And, <laughs> I, you know, it, it did work out okay, so he would have gotten the last laugh, but that's, he he knew I could, his, his philosophy and his, his football knowledge was geared around the wishbone, the wing tee, it was running the football. And he was not going to change just because of his son. And, I didn't understand it at the time. In fact, I wanted to throw it. I wanted to be like the other quarterbacks, drop back on a five-step drop or three-step drop. But I was lead blocker on the option play. And again, (laughs) it worked out. My dad's philosophy was in regards to recruiting and playing at the next level. If you can play, they will find you. And I, I suppose that he's right. Like it or not, he was right. Did you guys win? We were like eight and three, nine and two. Uh, I, my sophomore year, I was a starting quarterback the day before our training camp started. I was sick. I went to the doctor. I had what I would think would call the flu, and was not able to play because I had mononucleosis, even though I was on the on the better side of it. By the time training camp started, my spleen had swollen. It was it was too too dangerous to play that year. So I only played my junior and senior year. And we ran the wishbone my junior year. We ran the wing tee. We we changed it up my senior year. We won. But back then, now like three from each conference get to go to the playoffs. Only one from each conference got to go to the playoffs back then. And I rushed for about 800, 900 yards both years. We had two other running backs that rushed for about 1,300, 1,400 yards apiece. Uh, So, uh, in wishbone terms, we were fun to watch. And I think that, that what it did, that style of play, it set the stage for the gunslinger mentality. But that's what, you know, what throws we made, Jason were busted plays, really not designed throws, and they were always on the move. You know, uh, fake a misdirection, roll out, throw a <laughs> deep corner out. You know, so that set the stage for the way I played later on in my career.
1: <clears throat> what your mom think of your dad's coaching? Do you know? <laughs>
0: she um I, 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 at the time, I really didn't, I, I didn't, I don't think I ever, at least I don't remember ever pleading with her to f- have my dad throw the ball. I don't think she was, she she knew football, but she didn't, she, I could see my dad saying this, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but I could see my dad telling my mom, I, I got it handled, just, just let me take care of it, he'll be fine, my older brother's, Signed a scholarship to play football with Mississippi State, played a year there, transferred to junior college, didn't have the passion that I had, Uh, got an offer to a small uh, school in Mississippi called Delta State, went up there in the spring practice, just said, you know what, I've had enough, and he enrolled at Southern Miss as a student. My younger brother got a scholarship to play defensive back at Southern Miss, had a really good career. Um, and had fun. And so mean we, we, were, we were all successful in our own right uh, to a certain degree. Um, so it, it's hard to argue that my kids could have been more productive or could have been better players. I think my older brother got out of it what he put into it. My younger brother was a s- small, undersized, wide defensive back. He, you know, he was he was lucky to play in college and, and have a productive career, and he and he did. He had no no aspirations of playing at the next level. I did, I did, and I no one outworked me. I had a you know when I made it to the to the professional ranks, I was way way behind in the passing. The reading of defenses, the terminology, recognizing fronts, and how to adjust coverages uh, or, or your routes to coverages, changing plays—all that stuff was was foreign to me. But what wasn't foreign was moving around, making something happen, throwing a ball from any any place on the field, using my raw talent, which would only get you so far. But it, it certainly helped me while I was learning the ropes.
2: I think my favorite story that I've ever heard about you, you told to the LSU football team a couple years ago, and just for the audience, obviously, you don't need to hear it. You were talking about your second year in Green Bay, your coach is telling you about the nickel defense, and you leaned Mm -hmm. over to Ty Detmer, and you're like, what's that mean? He said, Brett, what are you you talking about? He's like, nickel defense, what are you talking about? And so... Detmer comes back and says, well, the linebacker comes out and a defensive back comes in. And you're like, so there's, there's still 11 guys on the field, right? Yeah. Then who cares? <laughs> 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 Tell me, how, I, I can't imagine a quarterback getting away with that today. How, was the league just different back then? How did you, you know, that's your third year in the league, second I, year in Green Bay. Tell me I think about the that. the league was, was different back
0: then, but it's 11 versus 11. And I'm, I'm proof I would never claim to be the smartest guy. I think at, in year 18, 19, 20, maybe my last five years, I was, you know, what I lacked in, in talent, but what skills had diminished, I made up for in the old Wiley-Fox uh, sort of play, like outsmarting defenses, using snap count to to get them to show what they're going to do, uh, looking off, things like that. But early in my career, I, I, I'll give you a, a, a quick example. One of the f- first meetings as a Packer, Holmgren sits in, in a quarterback meeting, and he's like, all right, right, we're going. To, if you've watched the 49ers play for, for any amount of years, that's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to do what Montana and Young did. We're going to, you know, we're going to move the pocket a little bit, but we're going to throw five, three-step drop passes. We're going to be split back. Sterling will be our Z. Uh, Ed West will be our tight end. And, and we played a, a bunch of different Xs. But we did misdirection. We did movement passes, which were bootlegs and things like that. But one of the things that he brought with him from San Francisco was a snap count, which should be the easiest thing that you learn. But he said, I want you to get up and and black and red are not live colors. You cannot say those unless you're changing the play. So if you say black 324, then the guys are going to say, oh, he's changing the play. So you can use any other color but black and red unless we change the play. He said, but I want you to call out the front after the color, so green 34, 36 37, 43 well I didn't know fronts no one had ever taught me fronts and I bet the first four or five days of practice I couldn't get through the snap count I I literally could not get through the snap count, I couldn't even worry about who to throw the ball to because I was calling him and, and he was giving me hell I'd say Green. green 35. Well, I was just throwing out a number. And he would stop. <laughs> oh, hold, on, hold on, hold on. But th- those are the, the hurdles I had to overcome. Now, eventually he said, you know what? Just call whatever color number you, you want. And black and red will be on live. Because it, if, if I got a quarterback who's trying to spend more time figuring out what the front is, we, we got big problems and, and, and it alleviated a lot of pressure on me. So the nickel part of it, I, I really did I, all I had to do was act like I wasn't exposed to, all right, I want you to get up here and draw a nickel defense. As long as I didn't have that, I, if I, you know, as long as he didn't put me on the spot, I could hide it. I could act like I knew what nickel defense was or dying or, an over front versus an under front stuff that to me sounded important enough that they talked about it, but not important enough that it would, it would hamper my play because I, I tried my best to throw it to the open guy. And if he wasn't open, I would try to squeeze it in there as hard as I could until I figured out (laughs) what was going on. And Ty, Ty and I, we, I, I had a, great deal of respect for Ty. He was funny, and he would say, well, we'd be watching film of of a game, and, and it may be a game I played well at times and had some some bad plays, too, but he, Mariucci would be running the tape, and he would say, what, what was the coverage there? And it, Ty would say, that was cover four. And I said, that wasn't cover four, Ty. Why would you say it was cover four? He said, you see those four guys around the around Sterling. That's what I call cover four. He he said, you may want to try to go the guy who's got cover zero. And I'm like, oh, I see where this is going. Uh, You busted my balls. But that was early in my career. You know, I mean, I never claimed to be the smartest guy. When I went to the combine, I was, I was very thankful that I was invited to the combine. But I remember saying to myself, Anyone can can be average and throw it, but I want to make I want to I'm I want people to walk away and say, "Wow, if he can ever harness that, he's got a he's got he can do something that nobody else can do." That's kind of like a guy with four one speed that's never played football before or seven foot three, never played basketball, but but is talented, just raw. And you go. If we can coach him, if we can harness that talent, we got a shot. And that's the way I looked at things. I knew I was behind from a passing perspective, but I knew I could throw it. I could make every throw. Now, I had to learn the ins and outs of the passing offense. That was difficult, but I'm thankful that that Mike and the rest of the staff, I know I tested their patience, but were patient enough to, to allow me to fail while I was slowly succeeding, because it wasn't always pretty early on. And I, I bogged myself down early on with things that mattered, but didn't matter in the, in the big picture. Uh, you know, nickel defense, after I learned what nickel defense was, I still wasn't convinced that it was that important. You know, because I always said <laughs> the nickel guy that came in sometimes was better than the backer in, in all phases. <laughs> so, what changed? What changes for us? I still read the same way, right? So,
1: mm.
0: I always had a, you know, like in, in my last couple of years with Minnesota, uh, Daryl Bevel was my quarterback coach and offense coordinator, great guy, great friend. We went way back. And Brad Childers, uh, very knowledgeable football guy. But we, we always butted heads, you know. The old saying: if it's cover two, run the ball. You know, if you got if you got a pass, run option. Um, and and I I don't I think there's sometimes that you you go with your gut. And I just use that as an example. Sidney Rice is a perfect example. When I when I was traded to Minnesota, I, I knew very little about Sidney. He'd been on the team for three years, but he had one touchdown catch in those three years. And I I couldn't have told you what game, what year he got that. He was just a guy, but we played Minnesota, obviously, and uh, I knew who Sidney Rice was. And um, when I got in person with him, first day of practice, I realized pretty quickly that he wasn't a burner, but he he was a rebounding type guy. He knew how to position himself. He wasn't going to outrun anyone, but he would he knew when to jump like all lot like Randy Moss without the speed. He knew how to position himself. He knew he had great body skills and, and and he and he wanted the ball and he knew how to jump at the right time and he knew how to like back shoulder and he was incredible. Um and so I, I saw that right away and I, I threw balls to him that you would go, what is he thinking? And then you go Oh, I see what he's thinking. The guy made a tremendous catch. It's trusting in your teammates, knowing what their weaknesses uh, versus their in their their assets. And give, he had four, he had 15 touchdown catches my first year in Minnesota, and he had three against Dallas in the playoffs uh, to put us you know into the championship game. And he had one catch the previous three years. Um, and, and I think that is how I wanted people to view me, too. Give him a shot. Let him do what he does best. He's going to fail some, but we got to see progression along the way. And that, that, was, that really was my career. I believed in my teammates, and I was willing to give them a shot. And I, all I asked for in return was more of that from, from the coaching staff early on. But I think that the players knew that throughout my career that I would do anything. I think I think first of all, when you saw me celebrating with my teammates, and I know it's been well documented, it was never scripted, it was always spontaneous, and, and it was it was real. And what I mean by that was if Donald Driver or Dorsey Levins or Edgar Bennett or Amon Green or Sterling Sharp Whoever scored a touchdown, I was as, as excited whether I threw it or not as anyone on the field. And that passion, I think, was obvious. It was not made up. It, it was uh, the love for the game and the love for the teammates. And I think that one of the things that are, I think, most important to me as I look back and I hear from either fans or players. From fans I hear, you know what? It ain't been the same since you you left. The passion, the fun. We just enjoyed watching you play. That that's the best compliment I could get. Not that I threw it the hardest or the most had the classiest throws or what you know, it's that's that means more to me than anything. And for teammates to to say not so much to me, but to other people. I love that guy. He was fun to play with. I knew he had my back. I knew he'd jump in the foxhole with me. And and I would trust him. That's what means so much to me. Not the awards I've won. Uh, it's the love of the teammates and the fans. And but, stories like
1: that... You made me think of a...
0: Jason. I think... are not made-up stories. They're true. But people can relate to that. Not everybody is a, a genius. Far from
1: it. And now, I'm certainly all- not. Uh, <laughs> but thinking, you made me think of a couple of things. One, or or I'm gonna focus on this one. The coaching staff in Green Bay early on, you had Holmgren, you got Sherman Lewis, you got Steve Mariucci, you got Andy Reid, you got John Gruden. And And listening to your stories, I think the media has missed the boat on, on the whole coaching staff thing, too. Iron sharpens iron, and perhaps you being so iron-headed is what made these coaches so great. They had to work so hard to get the best out of you. That's what
0: elevated all these guys. Well, no question about it. I think we, we, we played <laughs> off of each other. I think, I think everyone but Holmgren, and I get along great with all these coaches and love them dearly, Um, but I think all the coaches but Mike Holmgren would say it was I I think Mike would probably say it too to a certain degree that uh, it wasn't without pulling my hair out this is them talking you know that had that certainly had its place in that six seven years that we were all together um, before all these coaches you mentioned left but but it was fun, you know. It, you know, for example, Holmgren probably would say, "You know, I left San Francisco after just coaching Steve Young, most recently, and right before that, Joe Montana. Two guys that did it about as perfect as you could probably coach it. I don't know if you could coach it as perfect, and I don't think many people would argue that. To inheriting a guy who did it about as ugly." And as improper as you could possibly do it, but he did it with, and I, gosh dang it, it was fun. I, I can't believe I'm saying that. I, I, I don't know if that's, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think that that would be very similar to what each and every one of them would say if you had a sit down interview with, like coach. It was kind of rough with far, but wasn't it? Yeah, but damn it, it was fun. And part of my success, (laughs) largely my success, was based on fun. I I never took myself too seriously, obviously. But I prepared my ass off the best I possibly could on and off the field. And, And when I played, I played to win. I didn't play to be pretty. I played to win. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And I don't think anyone who was around me coach or player would ever question that. And that's important to me. You know, it's very important to me. And I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be fun with my teammates. I, I you know, it's a long year. It's a grind. And I, I, I cut loose and had fun and, and on the bus, on the practice field, Reggie White was a part of that. He, he was, he was the biggest jokester there was. And it, it was just always a good atmosphere. And to me, that's what I wanted. To, I, I wanted to bring fun and determination as much as anything.
1: So, and I am i don't want to bait you into trouble here, but I I do want you to be as honest as you can. Because one, I've heard Tom Brady talk about this, and, and he talked about it at the end of his career, like, hey, the game's a lot easier now. They've illegalized a lot of things that, you know, there's virtually, in comparison to the old days, there's no risk in a receiver going over the middle. And, you know, you can barely touch these receivers. You can barely touch the quarterbacks now. And so I look at these inflated numbers by the quarterbacks, and it, it bothers me because. It, it distorts people's appreciation of guys that, that did it when it was much more difficult. I, it, it, John Elway uh, is my favorite football player of all time, uh, and, and I hear people denigrate his statistics and I'm just like, man, y'all just don't know what football used to be. It, it's, it, they've just made the game so easy, particularly for the quarterback. And and so I don't I don't want you to badmouth the current crop, but you do have to look at the game now and say, man, I wish they had to ask permission to tackle me the way they do now, I might still be playing.
0: You're absolutely right, but I think it's to be fair with the times, and I I, I totally agree with you. They've added another game. It's it's a statistic driven league today that's about scoring points and a lack of defense and in fairness to the defense, you only in pads, I think 15 times the whole season. So you're not practicing tackling. You're not practicing physical play. The days of Parcells and Mike Ditka, you know, winning or playing a game on Monday night football and it being a seven to three dog fight. Those days are over. And In fairness to the people that played before me, dating back to Bart Starr and and, you know people that are in the Hall of Fame that played way before me, you could say the same thing about their era versus mine. You throw the ball more, you have more games. It's a statistic-driven league. More, you know, if if you threw for thirty touchdowns in nineteen seventy you, damn, strike up the band. That's pretty impressive. You throw for 30 games, 30 touchdowns, and halfway through the season. Nowadays, it's not not that big of a deal. I think it's, uh, it's what they want to see. I mean, I can't blame the quarterbacks for not getting hit. You know, I mean, I would have loved to play when they can't touch you where you can just throw the ball up on a go route and either you get your guy catches it or pass interference is called Uh, There's a very good chance of either. So it's favorable to you. Uh, The fact that you can only practice and pass 15 days, give or take only helps you as a quarterback because you got to figure that the physicality part of it is taken away when you're in shorts and t-shirts. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an offensive frenzy league right now. And, you know, it's about no one wants to see a football game in 3 nothing, And I'd, I'd be shocked if we ever see that again. It's going to be 45-40, 37-32. 40, you know, it's, it's about scoring points and um, the The pool of great players it gets expanded but I don't know if that's and I don't mean any disrespect for someone who has tremendous statistics but I think it skews the you know I'll give you an example Sterling Sharp is a tremendous player I played with him I was fortunate enough to play with him statistically in today's world he doesn't really fit in but he was way better than statistics And and you covering the league for so long, especially during that era, you know what I'm talking about. This guy was an unbelievable player and deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But statistic-wise, where does he fit in? And I think that's how players will be judged most of the time. Well, well he, you know, when you bring up Sterling's name, well, he only had this, he only had that. But the intangibles – or so much more important, but I don't. I don't know if we're going to see that much, or, or that be recognized as much.
1: <clears throat> no, it, it, it's not. I I, uh, I want to ask you about uh, your predecessor. No, not your predecessor. Your successor, uh, Aaron Rodgers. He's now moving on to the New York Jets, the same way you did. Uh, he's forty years old. He, he's moved into this era now where he's a bit misunderstood and a bit polarizing because you know, he didn't take the vaccine and he's, he, in the media, he's seen as a little bit difficult and prickly. Uh, your thoughts on how much you and Aaron's career and even kind of reputation in the media mirror each other when, when it started out like years ago, like, oh, well, these guys don't like each other, and Brett Favre needs to get out of Aaron Rodgers' way, and now both win a Super Bowl in uh, Green Bay, and you're considered two of the most talented quarterbacks to ever play the game, and now have to leave Green Bay and go to the New York Jets. Just the irony of how much you and Aaron Rodgers' careers
0: uh, mirror each other. Yeah, you know, we always got along in spite of what people thought. Uh, it sure made for, for good TV, I guess. Like, they're at odds. Um, and how it went down is, is a lot different than, than this past year with Aaron. Um, Green Bay certainly wanted Aaron back for whatever reason. He wanted to move on or con- contemplated moving on. I, on the other hand, it was a total different scenario. I wasn't really, we had lost to the Giants in the championship game. I was extremely distraught, did not want to think about football. All I could think about was that loss. And when when Mike McCarthy came calling a month later, wanting to know if I was committed to come back and play, I, I told him I wasn't committed yet. I just, I'm still trying to get over the last game. And I don't know if I've ever gotten over it, but... I was I think that they were ready to, to see what Aaron could do, rightfully so. They had to make a decision. And if I would retire or if I would retire, that would make things easier. That's not the case with Aaron's last couple of years with Green Bay. The guy has been a tremendous player he's, from from the day one that he's took over as a starting quarterback. I can't say anything but great things about the way he plays. I don't know anything about how his leadership is played out in the locker room because I've never been there as he, when he was a starter. So it's not, it's not right for me to say he is or isn't a great leader. Only the guys that played on his team can, can say that. Um, I don't know what kind of guy he is in the locker room, just in general. As a starting quarterback, it's not fair for me to say Um, all I know is when we were together, he asked if he could watch film with me. He asked if he could pick my brain from time to time and I had no problems whatsoever. I never had a problem with Aaron. Um, Am I surprised by his success? It's. I, I knew he could be good. I knew he had a great arm. I knew he had a quick release. I knew he had, I knew he had all the tools. And I knew, I think what people don't realize, the, the vast majority is the guy is extremely smart on and off the field. Now, being smart off the field doesn't necessarily translate to being smart on the football, football field. A High football IQ doesn't translate to book sense. The, the guy is super smart on and off the field. And he's calculated. Uh, as as a, as a, as he moved, as I moved on, and thought back to when we were together for three years, and I watched him and just kind of his maturation. Those things kind of became more obvious to me that you know that guy's really, you know, he he, he, he never really, to, in my opinion, he never really goes into anything without thinking about it very much prior to, if that makes sense. So in, in regards to his play, he, he very rarely gets surprised by anything. I think there's a way to prepare, and it took me a long time to prepare where I felt like I was preparing like one of the greats, whoever that that great was, I was preparing like one that I would never be surprised by a certain defense or a blitz. Uh, and I think Aaron was way ahead of the game on his pre- preparation and knowledge of the game. Where that came from, I have no idea, but you, know, we're all born with a certain level of brain activity. His seemed to work a lot more than mine. And his, his physical skills were- <laughs> were second to none you know i mean if you were picking guys out of a lineup to be a great quarterback, I don't know if you he would be picked in the in the top five just because he's not the tallest he's not the most physical he's not the fastest but the intangibles what what he has and I saw those when I was with him for three years. I thought I had a, a, the quickest release I thought I had the strongest arm but I question whether that is true with Aaron in comparison to him. Um, his mobility, I don't think has changed one bit. I think he's, he's been hit some, but not much. So at 40, he's a fresh 40, as opposed to when I went to the Jets, I was beaten up. You know, I really was beaten up, and a lot of that was self-induced. Um, a lot of that was the way the game was played back then. You could hit the quarterback uh, a lot more. And I, I relished that. I, I wish I didn't relish it at, at this present time, but I did. Um, but I think Aaron, I think in regards to the Jets, what a little bit I know about them, I think they got a really good stingy defense. You probably know a lot about about more of, of the Jets than I do. But I think that they have a really good defense, and I think the mark of a great player is you make the guys around you much better, and Aaron Rodgers will do that. What, what will that look like at the end of the year? I, I don't know, but I think he could take average talent around him offensively and make them better. And if their defense is as stingy as I think they are, they got a shot. They got a shot to make a play for it.
1: Brett, you said something about that Giants loss uh, 23-20 in overtime and how you couldn't get over it then and you're still not over it now. You guys were 13 and 3 that year. Look like, you know, Super Bowl winners perhaps. W- why does that loss, why did it haunt you so bad and why does
0: it still haunt you? Well, the the Giants game and the, the Minnesota Saints game are have haunted me and will haunt me forever. You know, I was always under the rule of thumb that, and I think my dad is, is, uh, is to blame for this because of the way he taught me and I believe it wholeheartedly to take total, uh, you know, it's never, every win is about the team. Every loss is. Yeah, you know, the team needs to take ownership of the wins and losses. But as a quarterback, don't ever think that you did your best and we lost because of other people rather than myself. You, you can always do more. And in those two games, I had a chance. Take the Saints game, for example. I, I have never once been critical of the Saints for – the bounty. What I am critical of is the fact that even amidst all of the bounty scandal, I had a chance to win that game, or at least give us a chance to win it, and and made a a, 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 a bad calculated decision, throwing back across my my body to Sidney Rice when I think when I look at the film, I just gotten hurt the play before and was dragging my leg but I think I could have drugged my leg or crawled to get a first down give us a shot at a field goal and that haunts me not that they were out to get me like not that they had put money on who can take far out. I take you know that I, I, you know it's, I take pride in overcoming things similar to that being beat up but overcoming it facing the the defense head on, making a play that overcomes all the negatives that piled up in the, the game. And why would I think any other way? I mean, I had a chance to win those games, make a play that only I could have made, that could have put us into the Super Bowl, and I didn't. And that that haunts me. As good as I played throughout the year to get us to that position, I didn't make the plays to get us into the big game. And, you know, it's, I've heard it from other players that that have said the same thing. Like, I had a wonderful career, 321 straight games without missing a game. Of course, we didn't win every game, but it was overall a successful career. But what I think about the most is those games rather than the, the wonderful Super Bowl win the, the, you know, the Oakland that honored my father, and numerous other games that I could easily talk about. I think about the ones that were so damn close that I had an opportunity to make a difference and didn't.
1: Given the fact that you just had back surgery yesterday, you've had hip surgery, why doesn't the bounty thing bother you? and and that NFC title game is the historic bounty game with Greg Williams and all of that. Why does it not bother you? Well,
0: I think they're always out to get the quarterback or the star running back. (laughs) I mean, there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. That's the way the Saints did it was the way not to do it. But I can't say that I was hit any different than I'd been hit in my – my career up to that point. I knew something was up, but I'll go back to my, my first year in Atlanta. Jerry Glanville's a coach. I'm just a guy on the team. Half the guys didn't even know who I was. I never contributed. Uh, I gained 25 pounds on beer and hot wings. Uh, about the only one who <laughs> who, who showed me any uh, compassion or put their arm around it was Deion Sanders, the, who just happened to be the most visible and iconic player on the team, and we have been great friends ever since. But my my point with Atlanta, every night before the game, home or away, didn't matter. We have a team meeting and that 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 goes for every team in the league. You ha- you kind of do the same schedule. That really doesn't change. Regardless of coach. So say eight o'clock is a team meeting. You just had individual meetings, kind of brush up on all the stuff you went over during the week, the last second changes, or we're 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 all in, yeah. So you go to the team meeting, the head coach gets up and talks. So it, this is my first year. Jerry Glanville would come in, he would say, All right guys, yeah, we you know we, we got the Kansas City Chiefs tomorrow. I got $5,000 if we can, whoever takes Steve DeBerg out. Uh, We play in the Saints tomorrow. $1,000 if anybody can get Morton Anderson out. I just thought that's the way it was. I I never saw any, uh, in saying that, I never saw anyone spear Steve DeBerg, uh, you know anything obvious that would would send red flags. I just thought that it was it was a way to motivate the guys to get get the best player out of the game. So that never happened as like after that as a Packer, as Jet, uh, and as a Viking. I never saw that again. I didn't see a head coach ever. Um uh, you know so in spite of all that Jason in spite of all that the 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 tension about the, the bounty and you know Kurt Warner the week before got taken out on a vicious hit I still had a chance to make a play just one play I made some good ones I played my heart out but I needed one more and I didn't do it and it wasn't because of the bounty so I'm not going to sit here and blame our loss like everyone else would, would say. Well, yeah, if it had not been for the bounty, they would have won. That would be so unfair to say that because Drew Brees played a hell of a game. Our defense played a hell of a game. Their defense played a hell of a game, but just had a couple of hits that I think there was probably five personal fouls Russ brought from the passer, and they really could have called 13. No. I think it was one of those, like if we just keep calling personal fouls, I know he's getting hit late and in the chin, and uh, we're going to be branded as flag throwers. You know, it was that obvious. But in spite of all that, I had a chance to win it, and I didn't, and that's why it haunts me.
1: Let me ask you and, and and I'm so gracious with your time, and we really appreciate it. I want to ask you one more thing and then or one more topic and then we can let you go and we really appreciate it but you've here in recent years you've taken another big risk you you've been open with your support of President Trump uh, last week you, you've you said, you know what let's boycott Fox News over Tucker Carlson uh both of those positions, I'm certainly boycotting Tucker. I mean, Fox News. I'll never turn the channel on again. Uh, so I agree with you there, and I certainly was a supporter of Donald Trump, uh, and and I agree with you there. But well, I, both of us are taking a risk. I'm taking. A, I'm black, so I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to hate <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, and you're a uh, public figure, and public figures are required to hate Donald Trump, and. Tucker Carlson, but why, why have you been so open about your political views, and has it cost you any personal relationships?
0: I don't know if it's cost me any personal relationships, but it's cost me money. Uh, you know, and <laughs> in the, in the, the legal issue that I'm going through now, as you know, uh, there's a gag order it can be talked about. I, I relish the day that I can talk about it. But getting back to, um, The political, I don't agree with everything Donald Trump does and says. I don't agree with everything Tucker Carlson says. Not everyone agrees with what I say or do. Uh, So, you know, I want to make that clear. Uh, You know, President Trump tweeted too much. You know, I mean, we all have our pros and cons. And I'm just using that as an example. I mean, but I think... I think our country was in better shape with him I, and I think the the fact that I spoke up or, uh, wouldn't play golf with him Biden would never offer to you know, he doesn't play golf and he wouldn't offer me to come play anyway but uh, but I've always felt like that there's a certain amount of respect that needs to be held for that office and I think the, the fact that I think Donald was a non-political president, and I like that about him. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. I'm flawed just like the rest of them. We're all flawed. But I really felt like he had our country in a better place and really cared about our, our people in our country, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, you name it. I think if you were an American citizen, he cared about you, first and foremost. I don't know if our current president has the same mentality or regime. I'm not knocking anyone, I'm just saying that's the way I felt. I, I I wouldn't even call myself a Republican or Democrat or Independent. I just know what I believe in. I think the people that are in this country should come first the the care and the the focus and the vision should be on bettering the people in this country. And I don't know if that's the case now. Uh, and I think that the, the the left are not afraid to speak up right or wrong and and unite. and I think that the the right, just kind of sit on their hands for the most part and let things play out. And I think that's part of our problem. You know, I got nothing against like transgender, for example. I got nothing, you know, it it is what it is. But I don't think it's right to push an agenda for us to their side, their side to our side. You know, but to think that a, a A young man who identifies as a girl, I don't understand it, but just hear me out, can go into a girl's bathroom and use the restroom with girls, and for us to think that's okay, I think is wrong, I'm sorry, you know, and that's just a, a small example you know i just think some things that we're we're allowing in this country are beyond belief and again i'm not perfect made a lot of mistakes myself but i think the the, the some of the thoughts and beliefs that we're we're seeing are crazy and we get somebody's got to speak up
1: I'm shocked that so many athletes can't muster the courage just to say it's not just going to the bathroom, which is clearly bad and bad enough. But if you're a top flight male athlete, you know damn well, as a man, you have no business competing against women in sports. And Absolutely. this is fundamental. Every athlete knows this to its, his his core I don't get why on this, they want to talk about police issues. They got no experience with policing. They got plenty of experience with athletics and know that men shouldn't be competing against women and girls. Why not speak out on that?
0: I have no idea. I, I, I think maybe vast majority are afraid of what it'll do to their career. And, it, and it's not affecting them directly not yet at least who knows where this country's going they got daughters
1: maybe it will they got daughters
0: yeah yeah it it, it may affect them somewhere down the road and then is it too late I don't know
1: scary well Brett uh we want to thank you for the time wish you a speedy recovery uh man coming in the day after back surgery and giving us an hour of your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, hope to have you back. with. If you ever come to Nashville and visit, trust me, we'll treat you well here. I don't know if you like country music. You probably do. You're from Mississippi. Like you you do Oh, okay. Well, I got a lot of friends here that would love to host you and make sure you had a good time when you are here and everybody knew that we got respect for you here in Nashville.
0: Well, I've always thought to world of view and yeah we've gone back a long ways i've seen you in locker room many a times but more importantly when the dust settles on my my issue i'd love to come on and and speak on my behalf um i appreciate you supporting me and seeing things with a you know with with clear goggles you know not forming a your own opinion Uh, Letting it play out. I I certainly appreciate that. A lot of people see it one-sided, and I think it's unfair uh, until the dust settles. Thank
1: you, Brett. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, man. That was awesome talking to Brett Favre. You know what I wish? I hope, I wish I had a picture of me and Brett Favre. Maybe I can get paint for your life to do that for me. When was the last time you had a portrait, a photo taken? Was the order process difficult? What was the occasion? Looking for a great Father's Day gift idea? With Paint Your Life, a hand-painted portrait is easy to create, fits almost any budget, and is a great gift idea for those you love. Paint Your Life transforms your photos into one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portraits by professional artists. Upload photos to create anything you imagine, put yourself in a location you've always wanted to go to, or add a lost loved one to a special occasion to create the portrait of your dreams. You will get a professional, hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price, an unforgettable Father's Day gift. Get a hand painted portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you have ever given at paintyourlife.com and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word fearless to 87204. That's FEARLESS to 87204. Text FEARLESS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Messages and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Guys, you know, I have a portrait from Paint Your Life. It's me and Uncle Jimmy, it's still here in our office. It's a reminder of, you know, the good old days when Uncle Jimmy was here. Jimmy's a little frustrated with me, but I still got the picture here because Paint for your Life did a great job and it reminds me of working with Jimmy for all those years. Paint your life, text Fearless to 87204. Uh, you can get your roll call Merchandise uh, at Fearless Army at shop Fearless Army, or no, shopblazemedia.com/fearless Army. We got T-shirts, we got hoodies, we got dog tags. Quality, uh, quantities are a bit limited, but go to shopblazemedia.com slash fearless to get your merch today. Uh, Steve Kim's gonna help me and TJ react to the hour we just spent with uh, Brett Favre of the Gunslinger. He let it loose pretty good on a few topics uh, and we'll look to have him back when the dust settles and so maybe he'll let it loose all the way on uh, the issues in Mississippi. Uh, Steve Kim, next.
3: All
1: right, welcome back. Uh, I want to roll out to Los Angeles and get the Korean co-sells take on the hour we just spent uh, with Brett Favre. I-, I think do I do I want to? I'm not going to enter into the record what I what I think or TJ thinks. We're going to let the Korean co-sell go first, and then we'll react off of. Uh, Steve, Steve, uh, what did you think of the hour we just spent with uh, Brett Favre?
3: Uh, Always great uh, hearing from a legend, and it really conjured up a lot of memories of when football was football and a guy that made the game fun, that it was not a business. He didn't call it a profession, which it is, but he was a player, and he played ball. Didn't play football. He just played ball, and he made it fun. You know, guys, um, my first memory – of Brett Favre, as I call them, was before my senior year in 1989. Back when uh, schools out here in California, Steve, let
1: me stop you. Let me stop you for a moment because I know you're not going to forget that. I didn't ask for your first memory of Brett Favre. I do want to hear it, but that's not what I want to hear right now. I want to hear it, but now, what, what did you like Brett Favre after that? Brett Favre has been reviled for the past two years. He's persona non grata everywhere. I found him very likable, very humble, very fun, enjoyable. I, I came away from that liking Brett Favre even more. Could we start there, and then we'll no. go down memory lane with Steve I, Kim, and I'll turn the show back over to you.
2: Go ahead. Well,
3: thank you. Uh, ahead, that's Steve. why I'm here to do my show. But look, I've always liked <laughs> Brett Favre. I, I've long gotten over... Whether it's an idol or an athlete that I respect or admire being perfect, I do not care. It really doesn't matter. And in terms of Brett Favre being reviled now, I'll just say this, consider the source. And if it's the mainstream media ripping him, uh, that makes me very, very suspicious. Like, Let's go back about two months ago when Inside uh, Sports on HBO did that expose on Brett Favre. It painted this picture, but then other people said, Steve, they're leaving this out, this out, and this out. So in other words, they are lying by omission. I think there are many sides to this story. And we all know the sins of Brett Favre. But guess what, guys? Brett Favre has never said, I am Mr. Perfect. And in many ways, that makes him admirable and that makes him a human being that should we should at least respect. And I really like the fact he's willing to say, you know what, this Trump guy, he wasn't a bad president. In fact, he was kind of good. And Tucker Carlson, I'm with him. Not because it aligns with maybe my personal beliefs, but I understand that in this particular climate for a celebrity or a big name athlete to go against the grain, they are putting themselves in harm's way. And that in itself is an act of courage and honesty that is rarely seen today.
1: Uh, I'm not yet ready to turn it back over to you yet. I still got a couple. What did you think? was the most interesting thing he said i personally found his transparency about bounty gate and jerry glenfield yeah. and coaches stand
3: up i got a thousand dollars if you take this guy down. i felt i love that that i love the fact he's a man about it he's playing a man's game and he said we are men we are modern day gladiators and for anyone to think that that particular New Orleans Saints team was the only one ever to have a bounty or it had not gone on for years, you probably think Santa Claus really comes down the chimney and gives you your Red Ryder BB gun under the Christmas tree. It's been going on for years. Guys knew what they were getting into. George Allen would have team meetings. As, okay, best hit of the game. That's to you. You're going to have a TV in your – I've seen footage of it. I mean, this, I just love the fact he said, you know what? That was a clean game. We were playing football, a lot was on the line, but I also liked the fact he was very honest and said, you know what, that turnover late in that game against New Orleans where I threw across my body, I still remember the Minnesota Vikings color commentator, he nearly dropped an F-bomb on that play. It's one of the classic radio clips you're ever going to hear, but I just love the fact he said, look... um, that game, a lot of that's on me. And by the way, and I give him credit, Adrian Peterson had a huge goal line fumble in that game that really flipped the game in that first half. But he said, no, I'm the quarterback. But going back to the bounty gate, when you are a big name quarterback, at least in that era, there was always a target on your back. And I've always found also he talked about his relationship with his father. Uh, I just love the fact that his father had this rocket arm son, and he said, son, we're running the Veer. I'm not changing the system. We're not running a single play for you. Uh, and your job is to lead the team, just shut up, and a dinner's at five and thank your mom. That's good old-fashioned American values."
2: <laughs> TJ, what do you think of Brett? Loved him, I, and, and he's been. My, my dad's from Wisconsin, so did you I, wear your Hall of Fame jacket yeah. in honor of uh, Brett Favre. I did yeah, <laughs> Thank yeah, <go> <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Uh, <laughs> I hope he noticed. No, I, so I, I've followed Favre for a long time. I mean, he. They won in Ninety Seven, wasn't it? Ninety Six, Ninety Seven. I think it's Ninety Six. They beat the Patriots. Okay, so um, I was six, seven years old at the time, and my dad was from Wisconsin, grew up in Lake Geneva area, and so we all always huge Brett Favre fans in my family. So I'm familiar with his work. Uh, I loved the first, probably the first 45 minutes was just him reminiscing. And he said over and over and over, yeah, it was hard, but man, we had fun. And and if you go watch some of the old NFL film stuff with him, he's got, he'll he'll walk up to a, a referee and I vaguely remember this. He was struggling in pregame or something. He said, hey, you got any right-handed footballs? I think this is a left-handed one. I'm not throwing it very well. I mean, just little stuff like it. It, he, he was just having fun. That was his whole day. I also found it interesting because when you have guys like that, even though he's, he's a Trump supporter and he's a Tucker Carlson supporter and all that, he said he doesn't think he's lost a single friendship over this. I found that interesting. All of his Trump stuff, and he's like, uh, yeah, I don't think it affected much because I think he's earned his reputation of who he is. You mentioned it with the game. People had such respect for this guy. They're like, ah, that's just Brett. And I find that fascinating and awesome. Steve, you wanted to jump back here?
3: Jason, what's interesting about Favre is how watchable he was. There's a great clip, NFL films, where they mic'd up Randy Moss. I think it was a Monday night game in 2000. And I remember Randy Moss was on the bench, and he said, hold up, hold up. I got to get off the bench. I got to watch this. This is Favre. This is Favre. I'm watching this. And, and like He didn't care about what the receiver coach may have wanted to say to him. He wasn't getting on the phone with this coordinator. He said, Brett Favre is must-watch TV. And I also love the fact that you guys brought up how he didn't really know what a nickel or dime defense was. And like he, he was the type of guy that basically said, if you're open, I'm going to throw it to you. If you're not open, I'm going to really throw it hard, and I'm going to make you open. Because he did turn the ball over, but I, you know, what it got me thinking was, That was the greatest job of coaching that, um, who was it, that his coach, Mike Holmgren, ever did. Because he took a wild Colt, a guy that was just kind of out there, and he actually contained him to a point where he said, You're going to be coachable. You're going to play within this West Coast offense. And I think he won like three MVPs. I mean, people always talk about the fun, the wackiness, the entertainment value that he brought. He was also, for about seven, eight years, one of the all-time great quarterbacks. He went to Super Bowls. He won a championship. He won MVPs. And I don't know if he was the prototype of that West Coast offense, but, God, he was good before, during, and after the great Sterling Sharp. And that really speaks upon his greatness as a player.
1: Uh, now, Steve, your first memories of Brett Favre. Yeah. Go ahead and take the show over. Yeah,
3: 1989, before my senior year of high school. I, I, I'll never forget. Back in the olden days, kids, you're going to be so jealous. We used to start school after Labor Day weekend and maybe a week after that. So we got to enjoy the first couple of weeks of football. So his junior year. A young upstart underdog Southern Miss team, about a three-touchdown underdog, goes into Jacksonville. For a neutral site game against a loaded Florida State squad. Bobby Bowden's on that team. All sorts of pros. He led them to an upset victory. I think it was like 30 to 26. I remember watching that game. It was on TBS. And I remember thinking, man, this Fabre, This pretty good. And he's pretty athletic. And back in his college (laughs) days, guys, his helmet was interesting. Because his face mask was what we call the Dickerson cage. The Dickerson. And I always thought, Wow. He's the one guy wearing that because that cage was always for the really fast, athletic, great black player. Dickerson, Deion Sanders, Emmett Smith wore that cage. So he was always an interesting guy. Then in the senior year, they had a much better year, made the bowl game, and I had forgotten his teammate was a guy by the name of Michael Jackson, who had a nice career wide receiver for the Browns. They actually went like eight and four and they beat Alabama. So think about this: in back-to-back years, Brett Favre led a relatively, you know, not say powerhouse, but an upstart team to victories against Florida State and Alabama. There was something about him that said to you, you know what? This guy has it.
1: TJ, didn't your dad coach you in football at some point?
2: All the way up from my second year playing all the way through high school. Oh, your dad was your high school coach? He They brought him on as he coached our, our corners on defense. I played quarterback, and so he didn't coach me directly, but he was on the coaching staff. And, and so,
1: yeah. What do you think, honestly, of Brett's dad not letting him throw the football, not adjusting the <laughs> offense? He's got one of the greatest arms in the history of football, and he makes him run a wish
2: ball. I, no offense to Irving. Uh, Irving, yeah, Irvin, thank you. Um, but – there's a reason he was a high school coach then, because he could not identify talent worth the crap. <laughs> I mean, this dude. I, I, well, have you ever seen the fingers of his receivers? Yeah, they all—they're all broken. They've all been dislocated. They all go eight different directions, and it's all Brett's fault. I mean, that dude threw it through a brick wall every time he saw somebody open. And so, for your dad to—did I mean, you actually care about your son that much? If people said. Hey, I really want to give him a scholarship, but I got to see him throw, and he said, "Well, come on to pregame. he'll get some warm up throws in
1: I, I I will say that i don't and I think Brett hears you in context, but he cared about his son, but his dad was just stubborn as hell sure. it sounds
2: like yeah uh and so
1: I could every dad on the planet would draw up an offense if their son was Kyler Murray's size and threw the football like me, they'd still throw they draw plays <laughs> to get their son as big a stats as as possible. Yes. This guy's dad did the total opposite. And and I think obviously it it hindered him a bit as understanding the passing game and you know not getting that three, four-year high school experience. Yep. But I do think it's probably why he connected with his teammates and was so well-liked and revered among his teammates. That experience, although rough and maybe not ideal, worked out well for
2: Brett as a personality and as a person you actually are just another guy if you're running the wishbone yeah that is the truth about it it's like he raised him in a way that I'm not just telling you hey you know be humble you're just one of the guys you actually are your job is to hand the football off and if you see somebody in the way you go throw a block that's what he said it's I I do agree with that I, I do think it's crazy cuz I played quarterback in high school and I played in the era of the spread and so I get it but like the, the fact that he's in the pros in this this is such a testament to his arm strength and natural talent. He could not tell you what a front was, a 3-5 front, a 4-3 front, he could, so much so that they just scrapped it because they were spending too, too much time on it. That, that's the other thing that makes him so likable, when he pointed that out at the end. It's like, it's pretty relatable. I, I didn't know fronts any better than you guys, and I was in the NFL.
3: <laughs> guys, I think it's tough Steve, I'll give you the
2: final word.
3: I think it toughened him up as a football player. I still remember the great battles he'd have with Warren Sapp, where it was just like two guys in a playground talking to each other, getting in each other's face, and, you know, guys would sack him, and he'd be like, you know what, that was a good hit, and he'd help him up. And it became like, I don't think a joke, but it really did uh, raise the respect level for Brett Favre. One last memory I have of Favre is that the first time he ever really played as a Packer, it was early on in the season. They're down to the Cincinnati Bengals. So the magic man, Don Mikowski, gets hurt. So all of a sudden, this raw kid out of Southern Miss comes in, probably doesn't know any plays. And by the way, my good friend Jim Lampley was on the call for that game at NBC. So they're in a two-minute drive. It has to be a touchdown situation. And, guys, if you go back to that play. Hey, could
1: you hold for one second? Could you hold for one second? I want to pick up that name you just dropped. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I just picked up. Anyway, yeah, my yeah. good buddy Lamps, Anyway, <laughs> it was on the call. That's when he was doing football for NBC. And this is one of his great memories. So they have to score a touchdown there on the last minute. Then all of a sudden, he throws this rocket shot to a guy by the name of Kittrick Taylor. And I don't even know if it was a good throw or it was a right throw, because it was right between the safety and the cornerback. That ball had flames on it. Absolute flames. That had to be a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. I don't know if three other quarterbacks in the world Could have had the arm strength to jam that ball in there. And maybe a lot of them would have said, no, no, we're just going to dump it down. But he said, you know what? You're open. Let me get it to you. And just like that, Don Mikowski was a forgotten man after a magical year, a couple years before. And that's when the Favre era truly began. And that's what I take from Favre. Entertainment and he made the game fun.
1: Thank you, Steve. Great job. You make this show fun, even though you're a diva and hard to handle. Uh, good job, as always. All right, we'll play some tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. look
0: for a breakout in like, like freedom
2: came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this news for freedom. I want freedom.
3: No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just wanna have
1: freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for
2: freedom.
1: Bless, we are living, get back we are receiving, all receiving we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to
2: be.